that there are a number of new space-related markets, and I especially am very optimistic about everything that has to do with in-orbit services. This will become a very big market, life extension of satellites, uh, inspection, uh, refueling, reparation, you name it. Obviously, we are in a world of data and of, uh, let's say, connectivity. All the markets linked to connectivity will grow. All these will require space infrastructure. Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by LifeEO, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executives, founders and more exciting people from the startup and new space ecosystem. I'm Dani Seidel. And I'm Sven Shivara, and together we are the founders of the Earth Observation Company LifeEO and New Space Vision. Today, we are very excited to welcome Geraldine Naja, Director of Commercialization, Industry and Procurement at ESA. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for, for spending the time um, with us today and talked a little bit more about like how you see the new space ecosystem and the, and the broader industry. Uh, we typically start the conversation with a little bit of, of a personal background. Um, and you have an incredible CV. And in one of the materials which we've read in uh, anticipation of the podcast today, you said that your professor uh, at university captured your interest in the space industry due to his ability to give real-world exercises and examples, uh, therefore making fluid mechanics, which Daniel also is a big fan of, uh, really interesting. Um, who or what do you acknowledge now in 2023 for keeping your interest in this space we are in? Well, typically, first of all, now I'm at a stage of my career where I'm more in the position of being a professor than a, than a student, unfortunately, I must <laughs> add. So, um, yeah, th there would be two types of things that really uh, keep me very excited about what I do. First is the startups. The startups that in the frame of my work I meet on a almost daily basis because I'm, I'm supposed to help them, to advise them, to, you know, help them grow. And um, just meeting them, talking to them, I'm absolutely convinced that among them we might have a future, why not be dreaming, a future European Elon Musk. And that is really challenging and, and great to speak to them. And also... The young people I meet more generally, uh, by the way, I, I do teach occasionally, uh, but also I meet the, you know, the young professionals at ESA or, or high, high school students. Um, and they are so full of curiosity, enthusiasm, passion. So uh, that really gets me going because I, I have to explain to them why is it so fantastic to work in space, why they should work in space. And, and that is really uh, keeping me very excited about that. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you have uh, you have two technical degrees, right? An engineering degree um, and a master in propulsion and chemistry, which... Uh, I as a like I also focus a bit on aerodynamics and uh, fluid mechanics. Super exciting stuff. Um, so this connection made sense, right? Engineering and propulsion chemistry. But you also have a master's degree in political science, which then was surprising to me. So can you tell us a bit how how this come and and also how how did it change your perspective on the on the space ecosystem? Well, it, it comes from the fact that I always liked history and international relations. So basically, it was part of uh, my 
curiosity and, and a personal choice to go for that in parallel to my uh, specialization in propulsion and chemistry. Um, actually, I would say it helps me as much as the technical degrees in my career. Because just to know, for instance, the basics of law, of international public law, of economics, of international relations. I mean, when you work in an international organization, this is extremely useful. And um, I wouldn't say I'm able to write my own legal text because my lawyer <laughs> colleagues would kill me. But still, it helps me understand how to how to shape it and what might be the constraints. So it's um also, to, I think, to, to sense that space has become not only a science and technical uh, domain, but it's also a soft power tool. Yeah. It's, uh, it has a, a very strong strategic dimension. So, in fact, it does help me uh, daily. Nice. That's also the reason, Daniel, why I always say that business engineering, which I studied, uh, is, 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 is quite a useful mix. I, I absolutely agree with that statement that having uh, two perspectives on, on any subject uh, helps, especially coming from exactly economics, law, and then on the other side, um, the engineering side. Uh, you also recently held a talk at a high school, as you, as you mentioned. What is your key message to these young people about space to engage them in a subject? Well, the key message is if you want to, to go to space, if you want to do space, there are many jobs. Engineers, scientists, technicians, lawyers, economists, business. I mean, you can, you can do almost any kind of studies and work for space. So that's the first message. The second one is that it's extremely rewarding to work for space. Because space is really helping us to understand our planet, understand the universe, how life came to it. And, you know, it's, these are major questions. And just working for space helps you to reply to these questions. So I think it's, it's always exciting. You never wonder why you should do it, because there are so many reasons to do it. A thing I tell them is that also space is a key factor of peace in the world. I mean, even when the Cold War erupted, you had Apollo-Soyuz. Nowadays, it's the war with Ukraine, but we still have the International Space Station with Americans and Russians and Europeans and Japanese, etc. And um, eventually what I tell them is that I believe that space is really key for the long-term future of life on Earth. And so I, I, I tell them, come work in space. Yeah. So again, like I see it 100% the same way, because exactly for me, also one of the motivators to go into the space industry when, I don't know, in, in school was exactly it helps you to answer questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? Are we alone in space? Is there other life forms in whatever form, right? On microbes or whatnot, uh, uh, anywhere out there. So yeah, that's very, that's very inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, before we go into the topics of the European Space Agency, new space and ecosystem, I have a, also a personal question because uh, you mentioned this this bigger interest also in what it means for humanity. Um, and for me, a driver is also science fiction. Um, so is this also part of your life? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, if I was on camera, you could see that in my in my office, I have a, an original uh, uh, display of the 2001 Space Odyssey. Cool. Uh, and uh, I, I, I very much like science fiction, especially when it has a real flavor to it. And I, for instance, I loved The Martian, both yeah. the book and oh, the yeah, movie. Totally. I really yeah. loved it. So, yes, 
I very much like science fiction. Nice. And the repeating question for Sven and me, uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? <laughs> oh, Star Wars. Star Wars? Okay, yeah. Ah, excellent and choice. Star Wars team. Excellent choice. Absolutely. Yeah, Sven. Anything. One more for you, Sven. Yeah. So uh, basically, um, uh, I'm super excited. Uh, in this podcast, we mainly had uh, entrepreneurs um, as a guest, but we also had the Luxembourg Space Agency in there and the, uh, the Federation of the German Industry, BDI, in one mm -hmm. of our recent podcasts. And now, finally, we have the European Space Agency. So I'm, I'm super excited to talk about that. But first of all, what is your role at uh, ESA? So, as I said, I'm, I'm Director for Commercialization, Industry and Procurement. So it's actually commercialization, which is a completely new department at ESA, together with two very traditional departments at ESA, which are industry and industrial policy and procurement. So you know how ESA works. Basically, we get funding from our member states and uh, we uh, design and implement large or small space programs. And to do that, basically, we place contracts with industry uh, with a certain number of constraints or of specifications. And this corresponds to, of course, a number of contracts that we place with a number of industrial policy settings. So both procurement contracts and industrial policy are at the core of what ESA is doing. But then uh, what is interesting is that uh, the director general has created this new commercialization department next to these two. And commercialization is about, let's say, fostering a new space ecosystem in Europe. So it's a new function because it's a new background. It's a new context for space, but it really requires completely new tools, new approaches for procurement in industrial policy. You have to do things completely differently and also much faster. So, in fact, it's a perfect setting because you, you, you have this new approach of new space, which... Uh, has uh, which obliges us to work in a different manner in procurement and industrial policy. But of course, it's only a fraction of what we do. Still, we continue to do large, let's say, cooperative infrastructure development programs, which we will continue to do, but perhaps in a, in a slightly different way inspired from what happens in new space. Yeah, and you said it's a, it's a new uh, part of ESA. When was it initiated? Well, the commercialization department was created uh, mid-21, so not oh, wow. even, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, it's one yeah. and a half year ago, so. Nice. Yeah. Crazy. So um, the reason why we are speaking today is because Elen Uvi, the founder of the exploration company who just closed, uh, I think, the biggest seed or series A round in, mm. in Europe in the space sector for building a, um, a space transportation capsule, has said that you are at the core of ESA's transformation. Uh, and and this is exactly why we wanted to have you on the podcast. And you already mentioned a couple of the items which 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 you are actively working on within ESA, in procurement and industrial policies, new tools, quicker iterations, quicker um, quicker work cycles. Can you maybe give us an example of how that looks in practice? Like a, an example of what has changed maybe versus the, the early 2000s? Oh, yes. There are many examples. But I would like to say it's, it's uh, nice that Helen Uvis <laughs> has said that about me because I think she is also changing the way we do space in Europe. And that's really interesting. So basically, 
what is changing? First of all, we are in a new digital age. So, of course, there are many things we used to do uh, non-digitally that now we do digitally and which help us go faster. Just to mention procurement, uh, you know, an end-to-end digital procurement system, uh, also uh, payments. Uh, we do that much quicker. We have electronic signature. We have So things like that change the way we work uh, and, and really help us accelerate. Um, there is something else is that, of course, with the, with the advent of the new space, also in Europe, we are working with new actors, with different actors. Yeah. In EO, you have, of course, ISI, uh, which is a game changer. And we work with ISI as a contributing mission to our uh, traditional uh, EO missions. Um, also, I would say we see uh, emerging new uh, small space uh, launchers fantastic. Uh, they will certainly contribute to lowering launch, launch costs in Europe, and this will also help us uh, tremendously. Uh, there are new technologies uh, in the last two decades. We have seen a, a number of new technologies, new sensors. So, um, yes, it means that we have to work differently. And finally, I would add, also in the way we work, in the way people work, you have seen with the COVID, for instance, uh, lots of people want to find a different balance between work and life. They want to be able to uh, telework, which the, the digitalization uh, enables us to do. So we, we have also to uh, work differently with the people who work at ESA, because in the end, uh, ESA's strength is, is its people. So in the end, the challenge for us is to recruit the best, but to retain the best, which is even more difficult. And, yeah. and for that, we have to take into account it's a new generation. They work differently. They have different expectations. They want to be empowered. They want to have responsibility. And this is the way to have them and to keep them. Cool. Yeah, so we, we also have seen a lot of uh, trends uh, in like to streamline the funding process at ESA. So we, we can confirm it. Like we had our first uh, interaction, I think, 2017 even. Um, and we are also uh, like in, in, in the past years, we had a, had, had a, um, a lot of interactions um, uh, and there is less paperwork for sure. And um, also the, uh, the process is, is, is streamlined. Um, so now from your perspective, right, you, you see all the initiatives, but you also see still the things you want to improve in the next years. Mm -hmm. what, what, do you, what do you think, where are we today? So is it just a starting point? Let's say like we are at 10% of the optimization process. Or is it on the finish line? We are not yet finished. And I don't think we will ever be finished because in the end, it's a, it's a continuous process. I mean, it's we, we need to improve in a continuous manner, uh, but we are much more than 10%. So just taking the, the COVID situation, you know, you remember within, like, let's say, a couple of days, everything closed down. And of course, uh, it was a very critical time for our industry because we were just after a, min a meeting of ministers in 2019 where they had decided on a number of new programs and we had yeah. to place contracts and pay industry rapidly. So for that, we had, let's say, within two, three weeks, we, as I said, we completely digitalized the contractual pro process and also we accelerated time to payment. So in fact, at that time, we divided the time to payment by almost a factor of three, oh. Oh, meaning, wow. yes, three. Wow. And, and for small contracts, we accelerated by some 30, 40% for time to contract. So 
We are not yet there. We would like to really further decrease time to contract, time to payment. But already what we did was really keeping our industry alive, especially the small ones, you know, the SMEs. We also managed to have more advanced payments for SMEs during that period. But in fact, we have kept the advanced (laughs) payments beyond that period because SMEs really have a problem with treasury and cash. So now we continue. The the idea is that we go fully digital for all our processes. And uh, we are on, I would say, we are way beyond 50%. Uh, We had shown the way actually with what is called the geographical return. So we had already digitalized before the COVID uh, the full uh, calculation system. Um, We now also have digitalized the contributions of our member states during the ministerial council. So it's, uh, it's what we call the digital subscription tool. And by the way, this is interesting because it uh, allows the member states to continue to subscribe even after the meeting of ministers at any time. And and this allows a more, let's say, dynamic allocation of the member states' funding to the different ESA programs. So, yes, we are uh, more than at the beginning and certainly not at the end because, Mm -hmm. as I said, it's it's an endless uh, process to improve ourselves. Yeah, because exactly one thing where we as a software company would see some, let's say, area of at least reconsideration is the area of exactly different stages in a ESA funding project. So LiveEO has, and we're very thankful for that, uh, received funding from ESA for commercialization of our infrastructure monitoring solution, which is now live with customers all across the globe. And we're right now also um, are in the, in the application process for funding to expand that technology even further. We are writing software and we are uh, a company which is writing software in an agile way, so not waterfall. Still, we had to go through a factory acceptance test, although I think nearly none of our engineers ever had seen a factory from the inside and maybe some from the outside as well. So um, so for some software development, this is a little bit weird to have a factory acceptances. How do you think about software in space and the procurement process? So, um, first of all, there is no ease position on yeah. software in space. And it really depends on the projects and the programs. It also depends on your technical officer and on your contract officer. Because, for instance, um, deliverables and milestones for the projects are usually negotiated with the contract officer. So, um, Maybe you had a bad one, should I say? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No, he was he was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this being said, the question is really, um, do should we trust industry more uh, instead of requiring tests which are not needed in the end? And mm-hmm. yes, there I think, yes, we are working on this and we want to, uh, let's say, use better our common sense you, you, you make the point. I mean, you've never yeah. seen a factory, you're writing software. Yeah. Why should you have a factory acceptance test? So we also want to save resources. Certainly, this is not needed for software. I agree mm. with you. And um, on the other hand, sometimes there are reasons why we ask a certain things from the companies. And there I'm, I'm getting away from just the software question. Yeah. Sometimes we, we ask questions because maybe it helps uh, the company Uh, that uh, maybe they should uh, uh, look at another aspect that they had not seen. But let's say, in the end, it's a question of risk sharing. And uh, 
The traditional way of doing projects at ESA is that ESA is taking all the risks and, and carrying all the liability, basically. Mm. So, of course, ESA will be very conservative and will tend to ask for more tests, more reviews, more, etc. But now we see more and more uh, a sharing of risk with our contractors, uh, sharing of liabilities, of course, and especially working in a more of a new space approach means increasingly we will tell you what we want, but not how you should do it. Yeah. And that, I think, will completely change the way we do uh, space at ESA. Of course, it is not the case for maybe the very large traditional missions. We will not overnight transfer into a new space agency, but... It is the case for smaller contracts and, and in particular, certainly software development. So I, I think the, the real question to ask ourselves is, why do we ask this? Yeah. Is there a, a compelling yeah. reason? And if there is no compelling reason or if it's just a stupid question, then we shouldn't ask for it. <laughs> The multiple points you said, which are very interesting. So the first of all, where is it coming from? I mean, also the space system, the very big space systems, they have to be tested multiple times, right? I mean, we have have seen it with Sentinel-1 that even there some something failed with all these tests, right? So that um, the interesting thing also for, for me is now with new space, this risk approach is changing. And yeah, and I, I think that's uh, like where to stop and, you know, how much risk do we accept? So that's a very, very challenging question. Um, for hardware projects. For software, I also have to say that uh, what I could see at ESAR is uh, that the people, they they know that it's uh, weird for software. And our technical officer, David Kopala, for example, uh, he has also told us, yeah, we have to go through this factory acceptance test. So let's try to uh, make it uh, um, fitting software better. And um, we also had this on-site acceptance test. Uh, we use it, for example, like an on-site test with our customers out there in the field next to power lines and, and, and railways, right? So somehow we tweaked it for our purpose and it, and it worked. And also a positive thing I just want to want to say for the listeners here, we used the material for our technical due diligence in the fundraising. So once there was the ESA stamp on it, there was no discussion yes. that it's not good, right? Also on, on the machine learning models, etc. So there's also a positive thing. Um, but now what was surprising me in your answer is that there is no official position on software from the European Space Agency. So uh, can you elaborate a bit on, on this one? Well, it just means that um, we don't have, I mean, it's not a dogma that mm. uh, for software we should do this or that, because in the end, uh, what we have been doing is much more so far hardware and yeah. uh, developing infrastructure. Of course, nowadays you don't have hardware without software. I realize that. But let's say uh, we have been starting from things that require to cut metal <laughs> more than <laughs> to write code. Yeah. So uh, the way we we approach a space project uh, has is, is somewhat shaped by our history. And I think we need to take into account that, for instance, now uh, the intelligence of a space infrastructure is as much on the ground segment as on the space segment. Um, and this is a game changer for space. And also uh, the intelligence of a space infrastructure is very much so in the software. Uh, yeah. So this is really something we have to uh, that's why we have to adapt our whole project management 
to this new reality. And typically, the way we will qualify, the way we will validate, the way we will review, accept, uh, is certainly different for software than for hardware. That's uh, just an obvious thing to say. And um, I'm not sure that we have yet fully, uh, let's say, the completely new guidelines for that. We do, but we need to perhaps uh, once again ar ask ourselves uh, the question. I, and I would like to quote an example, uh, also linked to software and new space. I think, of course, for, for uh, hardware, we, we look at, uh, to lower the costs for the mission, sometimes we look at using COTS. Yeah. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, yes, we, we think that many times we can use uh, commercially available uh, products. But this is the same for software. We have been used to tailor the software and to have specially made software for our operations, etc. But now you also have uh, in a new space uh, some startups that provide, for instance, standard operations software. Yeah. And we can use it because it's much cheaper and actually it works very well. But so far, we are still some, some of our project managers, which once again, I, I fully respect because they want to have high excellence, high quality, uh, no failure uh, products. So it is safer in a way to use a, a specially made software that you are completely in charge of and so on. But perhaps like for COTS, for some of our missions, we don't need that and we may use uh, commercially available software. So we have to reflect on that. And th this is one of the ways in which we will change the way we do space at ESA. As I say, not for all of our missions, but for some of them, the smaller ones, cheaper ones. Yeah, that sounds exciting. And I think it's also like using software, um, uh, like commercial off the shelf software for multiple missions is an exciting topic. And we had one in our podcast, which is Okapi Orbit, which you may know mm -hmm. for situation yes. awareness. So that's a good example for a software space startup in Europe. Uh, we would like to understand how you see uh, like Europe evolving in the commercialization of space or in the new space uh, sector. What is your perspective? Well, what I see is that we still have, of course, a very traditional sector, uh, which has been commercial almost from the outset and which will continue to be commercial. And clearly it's uh, uh, telecom satellites, satcoms and launchers. These are the two obvious commercial sectors in Europe, and we need to support the competitiveness of our industry in these two traditional markets, which is what we try to do. But what I see is that there are a number of new space-related markets, and I especially am very optimistic about everything that has to do with in-orbit services. Yeah. I think this will become a very big market, uh, be it, I don't know, life extension of satellites, uh, inspection, uh, refueling, reparation, you name it. And in general, this LEO economy that will yeah. really develop. And I think even in a slightly longer term, the lunar economy is also a very promising market. Yeah. And also, next to those new, what I would call space markets, we have new uh, use cases for space. Obviously, we are in a world of data and of, uh, let's say, connectivity. So uh, all the markets linked to connectivity will grow. Also mobility, take uh, autonomous cars, autonomous uh, shipping, 
all these will require space infrastructure. But also health or uh, energy or uh, in-space manufacturing, these are new use cases for space. So uh, we will continue to address our traditional commercial uh, segments, but also work with the new ones. Yeah. And you've you've mentioned exactly the lunar economy, and ESA has been a driving force behind uh, behind that 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 uh, part of the value stream for quite some time. I'm very excited about the Hakuto mission from Japan, which is currently on its way to the moon. Uh, which uh, I was part of a Google Lunar X Prize team uh, when I was at university ten uh, years ago. Uh, so I'm very excited to hopefully see finally the first or second, depending on counting space IL commercial mission to the moon uh, mm. potentially happening soon so exactly this this is definitely coming you've also touched on the role of downstream here and obviously there's iris squared uh, i think this is how you yes. pronounce the name but iris know, square yes yeah by the uh, european commission being uh, put forward and also agreed on and obviously live view is also an earth observation player this podcast is sponsored by live view LiveView's mission is to unlock the full potential of Earth observation data for humanity and life on Earth through AI. We are the global market leader in infrastructure monitoring and are bringing the power of satellite data analytics to other industries globally. Talk to us to find out how satellite data can benefit you and your company via podcast at live-eo.com. And obviously, Live View is also an Earth observation player. So there are potentially much more downstream users of space. No, there are definitely much more downstream users of space technology than there are upstream users, at least directly. Um, what weight will either put on activities or more activities in the downstream sector? Well, we need both. We need the upstream and the downstream. You need the upstream and in particular access to space yeah. to, because this is key for uh, any space activity or space policy. But it is clear that the value is increasingly on the downstream sector. And I would say on not only, um, let's say, space applications or space services, but also in considering space as a part of Uh, the data that is needed for the new services. So I think increasingly you will combine different sources of data from space, so Earth observation, uh, telecoms, navigation, etc., but also combine it with, uh, let's say, terrestrial data, in-situ data, etc. As you know, in, in Earth observation, this is key. You have to combine uh, the space data with, uh, uh, let's say, in-situ data, for instance. And um, this is where I see the big uh, value added uh, for the future Uh, services is in this combination of large quantities of data. And by the way, this will also require um, new ways to handle and to process the data, because as you know, Earth observation is one of the uh, major uh, data providers in terms of quantity of yeah. data. So you need artificial intelligence, you need the cloud, you need all sorts of technologies to process these huge quantities of data. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Now, we would love to dive deeper into that topic, but you also mentioned another very important topic, which is launchers. Um, so access to space, obviously, is of a strategic importance for, for any part of the globe. And, and Europe, obviously, uh, trying to stay independent, uh, independent access to space is relevant. And there are 
obviously a couple of launcher companies which are currently up and coming and then there's uh, Ariane Space who is already in the game. How do you see this market developing in Europe? I think um, the market is developing on, on many segments because the launchers, you have uh, the different uh, market segments. You have the heavy launchers, typically the, the Ariane 5 or future Ariane 6. You have the, the medium, small medium launchers, but medium launchers like uh, used to be Soyuz from Guyana or Vega. And then you have the smaller ones and including the, the mini launchers, I would call them mini launchers, which are currently being developed on, on private funding in Europe. And you have a number of these being currently under development. So as you know, right now we are in a, a very tricky situation because we are going to launch the two last Ariane 5s this year. We don't yet have Ariane 6. We hope to get it soon, but it's still finishing its development. And Vega, as you know, we have had a failure of Vega, and we just uh, we just released the inquiry uh, report. Uh, uh, so we, we don't know when Vega will be going back in flight soon enough, I hope. But still, for the time being, we're a bit short of launchers. So actually, we are, and it's also part of my job, I believe, to encourage the private development of small launchers in Europe. Yeah. And luckily, we have so many uh, going on right now. And also, it goes together with new spaceports. You know, we have our European spaceport in, in French Guiana, in Kourou, yeah. which is, of course, uh, a very good spaceport. But we also see the development of new spaceports from continental Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe for all the listeners who are not so familiar with the topic, why do why is there a spaceport in French Guiana, and why is that especially good to have a spaceport there? Yeah. Well, it's it's very simple. The one in Spa in in French Guiana is a few degrees above the equator. It's extremely close to the equator, so it means it's perfect for the equatorial launchers, uh, typically uh, Leo or or Geo geostationary orbit, uh, because until recently, this was the majority of launches. And when you are launching from the equator, you benefit from the full rotation speed of the Earth. So you, you, you already have a certain speed which is given to your launcher without doing anything else, which is very convenient. And also where uh, the French Guiana is, mean you can launch to the east or to the north without flying over inhabited lands. So should there be a problem, you don't risk to kill anyone, if I may say. But now, and also in, in French Guiana, there's another advantage. You don't have hurricanes <laughs> and you true. don't have earthquakes. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good uh, stability for your launch pads. But now we have new launch sites in Europe also because uh, now many missions are actually launching to polar orbit. So it's good to be uh, launching from the poles. You don't, the, the advantage of the equatorial is, is lost for uh, polar orbits in a way. So actually uh, you can go directly to the polar orbit. And also uh, when you have launch sites up north, be it in Sweden or Norway or in the Shetland Islands. Uh, of course, when you launch towards the pole, you don't fly over inhabited areas either. So this is also less dangerous or not dangerous at all. Yeah. Yeah. And you see the headlines, right? Uh, Sweden aims to launch Europe's space age. Sweden just opened an orbital spaceport. And we also had the discussion in Germany uh, with the with the one 
like uh, actually on the on, on the sea, right? So uh, yes. super super exciting stuff. Um, maybe uh, launchers, uh, as we all could imagine, um, they need a lot of funding, right? And I, I think you also speak a lot about uh, the hurdles in securing more funding for uh, the European new space, which is a, of course a growth yeah. uh, limiting factor. Um, so VCs see space as risky, um, but what do you think? Like, what does the um, venture capital environment look like today, um, uh, specifically for Europe? So um, we are, let's say, we are lagging back from the US. Uh, we have less access to private investment now in Europe than we mm -hmm. have in the US. But the good news is that uh, private investment in Europe is growing whereas it's slowing down in the US. So we are on a, on a good trend, shall we say. Of course, it's true that in Europe, less than in the States, in Europe, uh, it, it is, uh, space is perceived as a risky sector and very tech intensive and very capital in intensive. So it is some, somewhat um, a little challenge for investors to invest in space. They tend to favor software downstream, uh, uh, less so upstream. But also, I think it is our task, and we try to do it at ESA, and we do it with success, to train our investors, to, to make them understand that space has become less risky, that now you can do business in space, you can get profits in space, no problem. You make money out of space, including out of the upstream sector. And our main advertisement there is SpaceX, paradoxically, yeah. because <laughs> it is clear that SpaceX is making lots of money in space also. So we need to help the, the VCs by explaining them, training them, and also giving them access to our expertise. This is important for them. And we do that. We have an investor network and we do that. It is true that also, as you know, we don't have good economic conditions at the time being. I mean, it's a war, we have inflation, uh, uh, we, it's more complicated to get access to finance, there's less money available. So yes, we are in slightly different um, conditions than perhaps a few years ago. But I think also what would help and what we are working on is to have a more coherent European approach and a, let's say a larger European market for space. And I think for that, we really need to work well, and we do, with the European Commission, with USPA, with the European, uh, let's say, uh, entities, the EU entities, to, to show our investors that, in fact, there is also, next to the commercial market, a hefty institutional market. And this is a good sign for them. Yeah, absolutely. Because exactly, Danny and I always talk about governmental customers, and you just said um, there's there's a hefty governmental market. Um, but sometimes, for example, ESA or also other um, institutional players are framing it as grants, but actually they could buy the product just very much on a commercial basis, which would count as revenue, and which would make the companies which would receive this money as revenue would make them much more interesting for investors you also have but obviously you also have less control over the goals which are being achieved or how they are being achieved you are getting a product which serves a, diff, a, a, a purpose um do you think there's potential for um bigger use of that that in europe 
Um, yes, I, I think actually grants are only interesting in the very early phase, in the incubation phase, seed funding. I think uh, as soon as you have a, a product, a technology, a concept which uh, starts to be a bit mature, you don't want grants, you want contracts. Yeah. And uh, you want contracts because then you, you can leverage uh, and get a, a, a loan from a bank because you can show that you have a contract. It's also, you, you mentioned earlier, the um, let's say the advantage of having kind of the ESA stamp. Yeah. You know, you have the uh, ESA considers my product good enough that it can place a contract with me. Therefore, my, my product is really uh, mature and it's good quality, etc. And uh, what is true, on the other hand, is that at ESA, as I said, our, let's say, our DNA, our uh, traditional things is large R&D contracts where we have control, where we, you know, we specify, etc. Of course, if we now go to procuring a service, uh, procuring a commercial product, yes, as you say, we don't have control. We just buy something and we are not going to tell you how to do it because it already exists in any case. So uh, it's a different way of procuring. It's a different way of working with industry. And this is one of the changes that we are currently working on, adapting the way we place contracts. Uh, but also there are different, uh, even in if we buy a product or a service, there are two different things. Either we are first customer or anchor customer, and there we still can bring some support to the development and some advice, etc. Or we are simply normal customers. We buy a fully mature product and there we're just buying. Yeah. We are not even providing development support, yeah. clearly. Yeah. Yeah, one one example I uh, I think would be interesting for me to hear your perspective. Let's assume um, the German government uh, they want to monitor the German forests, um, and then you know the German government at the same time is uh, putting a lot uh, of uh, funding in, into the European Space Agency. So then there theoretically there could be you know a program of monitoring the German forest as a product as a subscription uh, through this um, uh, funding mechanism, right? Do you see things like this already happening, or is is this Uh, not not really the case today. Well, first of all, I, I don't know if this uh, responds to your question, but we we do have um, we do implement also uh, uh, national activities on behalf of national customers or national mm -hmm. agencies. So that we do, and this works fine. Now, if it's a question of uh, let's say procuring, for instance, a new sensor to monitor the forest, because, of course, you have forests elsewhere in Europe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. only in Germany. Uh, we have the Nordic countries, we have France, we have Spain, Italy. So this kind of monitoring can be very helpful for other of our member states. And there it can be the case where we say, let's Europeanize this concept. Let's make it a European forest monitoring system, yeah. which is also, and, and, and then uh, interest our other member states to the outcome of this, uh, of this concept of the, of the system. So, yes, there, there are many things which can be considered. And finally, maybe also uh, we can say we want to buy a launch service for a small mission that will do forest monitoring. And then we just buy 
launch services from, for instance, a privately developed German launcher. There are quite a few at the time being. So, yeah. yes, there are many options to look at. Yeah. So let's uh, look a bit forward also. So what, what are you uh, what do you think are the biggest opportunities uh, in the commercialization of the uh, space industry from your personal, but also from the ESA perspective? Okay, what I see, I see three sectors which I think will really develop quickly. As I mentioned already, the LEO economy. So all that has to do with uh, private lower orbit infrastructure, uh, lower orbit uh, space services, in-orbit services. Uh, all this I see a very rapid development also in accessing lower orbit with private launchers, but also uh, services such as, uh, you know, uh, last mile delivery, kind of. Yeah. So uh, there, this I'm, I'm absolutely convinced it will develop. Second thing, it's due to the geopolitical situation. I see uh, everything that has to do with security, sovereignty will certainly develop because we now understand how important it is to have sovereign access to space, to have uh, services uh, in the security sector as well. And um, yes, I think these will develop. And finally, because this is the trend everywhere and not only in space, um, all that has to do with uh, low carbon economy, uh, green, sustainable economy. And by the way, we in Europe are leaders in that. I mean, with our uh, Earth observation system, with the Copernicus yeah, yeah, satellites, yeah. we are really ahead of everyone. So I think uh, all the services related to that will develop tremendously. 100%. Yeah, I think like definitely the Copernicus program is, is leading the way in many aspects. And also the already existing satellites and the upcoming satellites to monitor carbon emissions and Uh, really just yeah. the state of the earth is super yeah. important. Methane. And, and yeah. I see now I, I've, I've met quite a few startups that offer uh, new uh, small constellations for uh, methane or uh, CO2 uh, leaks, uh, detection, etc. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah. Before coming to the end of the, the podcast, uh, maybe you have been in the industry since, since 30 years or so. So what has been the biggest change throughout the years in the space sector, either on how people are perceiving the space sector, how companies think, or how technology is advancing? There have been so many. Uh, first of all, space is not only about science and exploration now. It's part of the economy. So this is a major change. Then you have new space, which has completely changed the way we do space, but we've been talking about it, so I don't need to uh, to go further. I would say democratization of access to space, lower launch costs, and now you can build your own satellite, which when I was a young engineer, you couldn't do. And now you can do it because you have miniaturization, you have low cost access to space, etc., which is great. Diversity. Uh, private actors, public actors, younger actors, diversity in the recruitment. Well, still not enough women engineers, but it's coming slowly. Uh, and uh, digitalization. And I think it's not the end. We will see many more changes. And that's, that's why also it's so interesting to work in space because it changes so rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well thank you very much. One question which we always ask at the end is, Who should we interview next year on the podcast? 
I've met a couple of days ago uh, a young uh, woman who really impressed me considerably. She is named Tatiana Mandil, and she is the leader of the so-called Young ESA. And uh, she represents the young uh, graduate trainees, the junior professionals at ESA. She leads a number of initiatives and activities across ESA, and she is so impressive. So I would greatly recommend her. Okay, perfect. Then we know who we will have on the podcast soon. But for now, thank you very much uh, for spending these couple of minutes with us, Geraldine. Thank you very much for pushing the uh, new space and the entire space sector forward with the support of ESA. And exactly looking forward to see uh, what's coming next from the European Space Agency. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. And also thank you very much to all the listeners for tuning in again to the to this episode of the New Space Vision podcast. Make sure to follow us on all socials and you find all the other episodes on our website. Until next time. Bye bye. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. We have a lift off.